This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. Our guest this week is United States Trade Representative Ambassador Michael Froman. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Ambassador Michael Froman next. Sugar subsidies of 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy. You can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The idea of a Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement has been in discussion for over two decades. After five years of intense negotiations, an agreement was signed last year. Ambassador Michael Froman says the Obama administration is ready to move ahead with the ratification of the 12-member trade deal. But the next step is up to the U.S. Congress. We have worked over the last year to build support for it in the Congress, to prepare for it to be taken up by Congress. But at this stage, it is a legislative process, so it's really up to the congressional leadership to bring it up. And needless to say, coming out of this election, they have indicated that they don't plan to do that during this lame duck period. We certainly hope that as time goes on and as other countries move forward with their own trade agendas, that we'll be able to see TPP move forward as well. What is the state of then of TPP among the other 11 trading partners? Well, each of them has their own domestic process that it has to go through, and it's at various stages in that process. Uh, So, for example, the lower house of the Japanese parliament, uh, or Diet, approved it, and that's an important step. Uh, It's making its way through several other parliaments around uh, the region. And particularly for these other countries uh, who, um, in implementing TPP, have to make changes in their laws or their regulations, unlike the United States, uh, there's a lot of work being done to, to advance that agenda and move it forward. If we pull out, what happens? You know, it's a, it's a, we're, we're, we're breaking new ground here. Um, uh, we don't know. Uh, it's possible the other countries will find a way to move on um, with it without us. Um, and uh, with the hope that we would join over sometime in the future, um, it's possible they'll pursue other trade agreements. Um, as you know, there's a, another trade negotiation going on right now led by China called uh, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It involves 16 countries. Uh, many of the TPP countries are also involved in that negotiation. And we're already seeing uh, accelerated efforts by China to try and move that negotiation uh, forward. Um, and, of course, you know, there's no problem with that moving forward as long as TPP does. But if RCEP moves forward and TPP doesn't, we're going to find ourselves cut out of some of these very important markets. And we're going to find ourselves facing a set of rules in the region 
that don't necessarily reflect uh, our interests and, and our values. A public quote from the president-elect, our leaders have negotiated terrible deals that are bleeding this country dry. Well, I'm not going to comment on any particular uh, candidate or even on the president-elect's position. All I can say is uh, we have seen over the course of, of the last uh, uh, several years that our trade balances have improved with those countries with whom we have uh, free trade agreements. Uh, that our free trade agreements have allowed us to have access to some of these fast-growing markets uh, on preferential terms. And certainly when it comes to TPP, the independent estimates, uh, for example, from the Peterson Institute, are that they would increase GDP here by $130 billion a year. They would increase our exports $350 billion a year. Uh, The two-thirds of the benefits would go to workers, both skilled and unskilled workers, and the American Farm Bureau has estimated that it would increase farm income by $4.4 billion a year. So uh, that, that, to me, that sounds like a pretty pretty good deal, pretty strong deal. Uh, it certainly achieves what we set out to achieve, which is to support more jobs here in the United States, higher wages and, and better incomes uh, here in the United States, and to strengthen uh, the American middle class. If we look at the global trading environment, is it fair and level for U.S. products or is there an, a definite need for trade agreements to level it? Well, look, our view is that, that we do need these kinds of trade agreements to level the playing field. Uh, you know, we, the United States is a very open economy. Our average applied tariff here is less than 1.5%. 80% of what we import from TPP countries already comes in duty-free. But when we look abroad, we face much higher barriers, both tariff and non-tariff barriers. You know, poultry, 40% tariffs on our exports. Pork, by some measure, several hundred percent tariffs on our, on our exports. 38.5% tariffs on certain beef products into, into Japan. All of those would either be eliminated or greatly reduced because of TPP. And it's not just the tariffs, as you know. Um, in a lot of countries, well, we use our food safety regulations, our sanitary and phytosanitary standards are, are based on science. Other countries often use them as a tool of protectionism. And what TPP requires is that other countries apply science and that we have ways of ensuring that they do or we can impose sanctions on them. Uh, so that's very important for our, our, um, our agricultural product exporters. And I'll just mention a third area. Uh, it's something called geographical indications, uh, which, as you know, is our ability to sell certain cheeses or meats abroad. We have a very significant uh, conflict and competition with the European Union about what rules should apply. Uh, you know, we think uh, if a cheese name is generic uh, in the market uh, or if it's trademarked, we should be able to, to sell it. Uh, the Europeans think that nobody should be able to sell feta cheese anywhere in the world unless it comes from, from Greece. Um, and in, in TPP, we established some very important rules with regard to geographic indications that made sure that if there is a trademark, if it is generic, that there's an opportunity to to defend our access to those markets. If TPP doesn't move forward and the EU continues to expand its trade agreements in the region, uh, we're going to lose out on these on these markets for our dairy exports. The opponents of TPP have generalized and suggested that it's trade agreements as a source of major job losses in the country. Well, look, I, I think the reality is that we live in a global economy. And you know, the, in the American economy, we have 50 million job turnovers every year. We are a very dynamic 
economy. Where there has been job loss, most economists will tell you that the vast majority of it is because of automation, not because of trade. And to the degree that globalization does have an impact on wages and the composition of jobs in the United States, our view is that trade agreements are the way that we shape globalization to make sure that the global economy is working for American workers and farmers and, and ranchers. And that's exactly what we tried to do through our TPP negotiations. I'll just give you one example outside the agricultural area. You know, some people say we don't produce anything here in the United States. We don't make things anymore. This year, we have actually produced more manufactured products in the United States than ever before in our history. Ever before. We are, we are a bigger manufacturer now than we ever have been. And now we're doing it with fewer workers, and that's largely because of automation. But you don't get to vote on automation. You don't get to vote on a new generation of robots or a new generation of software that gets rolled out at your workplace. You do get to vote on trade agreements. So trade agreements become a bit of a scapegoat for all the concerns that people have about the changing nature of the workplace, the changing nature of their community. And unfortunately, it has become the target when, in fact, uh, it's, in our view, part of the solution, not the cause of the problems. How would TPP have helped U.S. manufacturing? Well, first, by, by leveling the playing field, by opening other markets to our exports. You know, just like I mentioned on the, on the agriculture side, you know, we have a 2.5% tariff on autos coming into the United States. Vietnam has a 70% tariff. Uh, Malaysia has a 30% tariff plus a whole raft of non-tariff barriers. All of those would have been eliminated under TPP. Um, the same thing is true on, on auto parts. We are a major exporter of autos and auto parts, as well as chemicals, which face a 35% tariff in some of these TPP countries. So we would be leveling the playing field in terms of lowering tariffs, and then we would be leveling the playing field by raising standards in these other countries. TPP requires these countries to have um, firm labor and environmental standards and makes them fully enforceable so that a country can't avoid paying their workers a, a fair wage or allowing them to, to bargain collectively um, as a way of gaining a competitive advantage uh, in trade. Um, or if they do that, we can impose sanctions on them. So that is a, a very strong element of, of TPP that responds to a lot of the c concerns about the global economy, uh, but it only happens if TPP goes into effect. There might be some who would suggest that the U.S. share of the global market of agriculture and manufacturing would be static. Do we simply lose what we might have gained by not participating in TPP, or is there a chance that our existing share could fall? Well, I think it's not only a chance. I think it's a current reality. You know, uh, when we talked to the cattlemen, as you recall, uh, the cattlemen made clear that because Australia already has a free trade agreement with Japan, they face a lower tariff on their beef exports to Japan, and we're losing $400,000 a day of exports. You know, it's about $140 million a year. And that number is only going to go up year by year as Australia gets a lower and lower tariff into Japan, and we stay at 38.5%. Now, multiply that by you know thousands of products and a dozen countries, and you can see what the effect of staying on the sidelines uh, will be, that other countries will move ahead or, are, or have already moved ahead with other trade agreements. They'll get preferential access to these markets, will face higher tariffs, and we're going to find even our current market share declining. 
you know, Japan's a major export market for us right now for pork. And that's notwithstanding the fact that it has, you know, serious protection uh, in, in the Japanese market that would have been, or it would be eliminated or addressed through, through TPP. The EU is trying to finish its trade agreement with Japan this year. And the EU, particularly Denmark, as I understand it, produces a lot of pork. So if the EU gets in there at a preferential tariff rate, our current exports to Japan will decline. You know, and as you know, once you lose that market, you lose those relationships with distributors, with buyers, it's very hard to regain. So it, it's, it's not only the upside opportunity that we lose, that, that $350 billion of increased exports that's been estimated to, to accrue to the United States because of TPP, but it's the current exports to the region that we could see decline. And that means that not moving ahead with TPP could actually create job loss in the United States, income loss, lower wages, all the things that we've all been trying so hard to, to combat. Um, those could be, uh, we could see more of that if TPP doesn't move forward. Those who have opposed TPP criticized the deal because it didn't have stronger wording on currency manipulation. Well, actually, it's the first trade agreement ever to have an arrangement on currency. So that the 12 TPP countries agreed to a set of criteria about what appropriate exchange rate policy is. They agreed to a series of transparency provisions. So for the first time, we would have visibility into how other countries are intervening in the markets. And then they agreed to an accountability mechanism where the finance authorities of each country would hold each other accountable for living up to uh, living up to those criteria. And that only goes into a place if TPP moves forward. Now, what it doesn't do, which some of the critics have raised, it doesn't end in trade sanctions. And the reason for that is that while we might criticize another country for manipulating its currency, other countries look at our monetary policy, quantitative easing, for example, and say it has the same effect. By expanding the monetary base, you're going to weaken the dollar, and that's going to have a trade advantage. And we would never submit the Federal Reserve or our monetary policy to trade sanctions, and no other country would either. So it doesn't go quite as far as some of the critics would like, although I think there's good reason for that. But it does take a major step forward in putting disciplines in a trading arrangement on currency. And that, too, is at risk if TPP doesn't move forward. Regardless of the will of the coming administration and of the new Congress, just from the rules of engagement, how much time does the U.S. have to ratify this deal and still participate? The way it was negotiated, the goal was for all 12 countries to join uh, TPP within two years after it was signed. So that would be uh, uh, February 2018. And so we've got a little time still to get it done. But once it gets ratified by Congress, there's still a process we need to go through, which is to certify that all the other countries have met their obligations before we, we will allow it to go into effect. And so, you know, the sooner the better in terms of getting that process started. Are there ways that we could have side agreements, side negotiations, or reopen the talks and still come to a conclusion? Yeah, our view is that reopening or renegotiating would be exceedingly uh, difficult, and it's because it's it's not a bilateral deal like we've done in the past, where we offer market access to our market in exchange for other countries adopting 
certain rules. For half these countries, they already have access to our market. They already have FTAs with us. And so there's very little that we can offer them to get them to change their position on, on various issues. And it's a much more complicated negotiation because it's 12 countries and it covers the range of issues that, that it does that I think it's very, very difficult to, to renegotiate. You know, having, having said that, obviously the new administration will need to come in and I imagine we'll want to consult with stakeholders and with Congress and talk to its, our trading partners and determine the best way to move forward. Could you preview for us the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade that is just ahead and uh, perhaps as well uh, talk about those can, those congressmen and senators who would like to see a little pressure on the Chinese with regard to chemistry and trade approval in agriculture? Right. So we've got our annual meeting uh, with Vice Premier Wang Yang uh, coming up, uh, which uh, and there's been a lot of preparation for it throughout the year. This is a good opportunity to engage with the Chinese government on a whole range of issues, including those that affect um, agricultural trade. And, and as you suggest, one of the uh, main issues on the agenda will be the whole issue of agriculture biotechnology and uh, the Chinese process for approving new biotech events in their market. Uh, we've got a lot of concerns about the backlog, the, the number of applications that have are awaiting signature, and we've been encouraging the Chinese to come forward with approvals for those. We also have concerns more generally about the process they go through and how their process is out of sync with uh, the rest of the, the world, which makes it very difficult for our farmers to have the confidence they need that if they plant a, uh, a new product this year that they'll be able to export it around the world uh, next year. And so um, uh, this is something that's, uh, that's, that's very serious. We've been talking to the Chinese for a while about it, and we're going to use this meeting to reiterate our concerns and underscore the importance of moving forward. There's some other issues as well, including beef, which is a longstanding issue. We've been working over the last several years to open up beef markets for, uh, for U.S. exports, and we've had great success in opening, I think, more than a dozen markets um, for U.S. beef um, exports, and, and China remains an outstanding one that we're continuing to work on. Mr. Ambassador, I would just ask that after your experience of working in this position and, and representing the United States and global trade, how do you see the globe changing? What will be the nature of agreements for years to come? That's a it's a it's a great question. I mean, let me let me take it in a couple of different ways. I think first, very importantly, over the last couple of years, uh, we've seen a, a change in the rate of growth of trade. It used to be that trade was growing faster than global economic growth. And in fact, the trade was leading global economic growth. And the last couple of years, it's been at or even below the levels of economic growth. And there are a number of explanations for that. But what that means is that I think we have to be even more proactive about identifying and eliminating obstacles to trade to make sure that uh, we're not putting up uh, new barriers that are making it harder for trade to play the historic role it's played in terms of promoting economic growth around the world, lifting hundreds of millions, if not over a billion people out of poverty, um, enhancing food security uh, around the world, and here in the United States, raising incomes and strengthening the jobs associated with exports. And we have that 14 million people in the United States who now owe their jobs 
to exports. And, and as Secretary Vilsack has taught me, you know, fully 20% of farm income is now tied to agricultural exports. So we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to expand that opportunity. In terms of, terms of the types of agreements, you know, I think what we've seen over the last uh, year or two, as the president has talked about, is a sort of a rise of concern, of it's sometimes expressed as populism, it's sometimes expressed as people feeling like they are losing control over issues that are important in their daily life, and that you see that in Brexit, and you see it perhaps in some of the recent uh, polls here in in the United States. You see it in other countries as well. And I think what that does is it really underscores the importance of folks in government in the private sector uh, really being focused on how do we deal with uh, people and communities affected by change. Whether that change comes from technology or it comes from demographics or it comes from globalization, uh, we need to to think more thoroughly about how do we make sure that people are prepared to deal with change. Uh, they've got the tools and the skills and the, the resources available uh, to address that so that they can have the confidence because the change is going to happen. You know, we can't put the globalization genie back in the bottle. You know, we can't pretend that, that technology is not going to uh, improve or affect our lives. Uh, the question is whether um, uh, we and whether the political system is capable of addressing change and making sure that people have the tools that they need so that they feel more confident um, in their capacity to uh, provide for their families, make sure their kids are having a life that is even better than theirs, and therefore to support the kind of policies going forward to take advantage of the opportunities that that change brings. Ambassador Froman, I want to thank you personally uh, for your service to our country and standing up for agriculture and for manufacturing. We appreciate your service so much and what you've done. You've been our guest on Open Mic, and we're grateful. And, sir, you have the last word. <laughs> well, uh, listen, I just want to thank you, and I, want, I really want to thank the agricultural community. I, I, uh, I have learned a tremendous amount of this job from the farmers and ranchers and food processors and really everyone along the, the supply chain uh, that's involved in agriculture. And uh, I have learned that the agriculture community is, is perhaps the most uh, internationalist community in, in the entire uh, economy. They understand what's at stake in the global economy of getting this right, of creating these new opportunities, of getting the rules right. Um, and they are tremendously effective. Uh, as, as I often joke, there's no better feeling than walking into a member of Congress's office two hours after they've had a visit from you know, a cattleman or a pork producer or a member of the Farm Bureau uh, because uh, the, the, the member of Congress really understands what's at stake when they hear from their constituents. And uh, those constituents have been uh, a very important part of educating all of us as to the importance of trade. So I just want to thank you and the role that, that you all play in the, in the, uh, the agriculture media uh, community uh, to make sure that, that we understand what's at stake and that um, people across America understand uh, what we're doing to try and address their interests. Our thanks to U.S. Trade Ambassador Michael Froman, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.